Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. It is so good to see all of you this morning. It is my pleasure to be here and see all your smiling faces. I have been asked several times what I am doing now, so I thought I'd start with that and bring you up to date, lest some of you think I'm just sitting home and relaxing and not doing anything. When we transitioned and I stepped down as senior pastor several years ago and retired from that position, I told you at the time that I would be open to the direction that the Lord would you know, have me go and do whatever he opened the door to do. And he opened several new doors, and uh, I was amazed really at, at some of the opportunities that came my way. As you've already heard, the Detroit Bible Institute uh, was a place where I began to teach. And then that opened up to teach in a lot of other places. I went to Singapore and taught in the Bible Institute there which opened up the door the next year to go to New Zealand and teach, and also to Malaysia, was taking a group to Israel, going to the Ark. Uh, All sorts of opportunities were coming my way to teach. The Lord really opened the door. And then he just went and closed it. (laughs) As fast as he opened it, he closed it. COVID hit. Everything stopped. And you couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything, couldn't travel, couldn't go out of town to teach. And so everything had to change. That's why I titled this sermon today, Reboot. You know, it's like when you have a computer and you're just working away, typing on everything, and you've got your whole uh, idea there, and, and you've just scheduled out everything, and as you're working away, all of a sudden the thing just stops, and it won't work anymore. And no matter what you do, it, it just won't finish. And it takes all of your work and it throws it out and eats it. And you can't get it back. And if you call somebody for help, what's the first thing they'll tell you? Reboot it. Which means turn it off and start over. And when you do that, a lot of times it'll work. But, but also it makes you start over. And when you're in the middle of something, boy, you just hate to start over and have to do it again. And so I was right in the middle of the Lord really organizing my future and taking me places when it all just stopped and I had to reboot and do it all over again. Do it different. So I've learned to do Zoom classes, which was new, had done those before. Hybrid at DBI, by the way, Detroit Bible Institute does do them online if you can't make it to the actual class. Certainly have done it with Singapore people, which is a 12-hour time difference, so I have been up till midnight teaching. I don't think the last hour of any of those classes is particularly good, (laughs) because I have not been up late for a long time, or I have to start at 7 in the morning, and the first hour isn't particularly good either, because I try to wake up. But I've also had time now to sit back and observe some things. Because when the Lord just stops you, when everything just ends, and all your plans are over, 
and everything that you thought you were going to do just comes to a screeching halt, it gives you time uh, to begin to reflect and look at things from a different angle. The first thing I did was thank the Lord profusely that I was not involved in having to reboot the church. And so I do give kudos to the staff here, and they, when they just refused to let you come and in one Sunday had to change everything to online and all that, I don't think you even begin to understand how much work that is. I do. And I was so glad I didn't have to do it, and I'm so glad that they did. <laughs> and I think they did a great job. <laughs> I've had the better opportunity of having more time to reflect. And so this morning, that's kind of what I want to talk about, is looking at the things that have happened in the last couple of years and seeing what we can learn from them. As we've all been forced to kind of reboot, uh, come at things from a different angle, see the great changes that have taken place so quickly in our world that sometimes leave us overwhelmed and unable to understand where we're going and what we're doing, but it is in these opportunities where the Lord also opens new doors and gives us the chance uh, to come at things from a different angle. If I could go to the Bible and find a person there who had to reboot his whole life, for me it would be the Apostle Paul. Paul was convinced he was on the right track. He knew where he was going and he knew why he was going there. He knew the Jewish law. He was zealous for the Jewish law. He wanted his people to be blessed by God. He wanted the Messiah to come and usher in uh, the new world order. And he knew that if his people would stay true to the law, if they would make God first in their lives, that this indeed would happen. God had always been faithful and would continue to be faithful to his people. And in his zealousy, he, he just knew he needed to stamp out this new heresy that had come on the scene, that someone named Jesus was actually the Messiah. And so he went out of his way to stop the followers of Jesus because he knew that God was not going to bless them. God was not going to usher in the new way if they didn't stop because they had turned from God before and they'd been punished. But on the road to Damascus, as it's recorded in the book of Acts, he met the risen Jesus. He got knocked right off his animal. He got knocked right down and had to reboot his whole way of looking at the world, his whole way of looking at Judaism, his whole way of doing what he thought was right because he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And his life became refocused and repurposed by that encounter. In 2 Corinthians, he would write this, as he would talk about his mission and what he was doing now and trying to help the Corinthian church, which had a lot of issues. But in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, he said this about what he preached. He says, what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. 
Paul would understand the greatness of the message of Jesus Christ when he would say, I can see in the face of Christ the glory of God. See, he had to reboot his entire understanding of what the glory of God actually meant because he had an Old Testament view of the glory of God. The glory of God is described in the Old Testament, the glory, the righteousness of God was an awesome thing to behold. It starts right off in Genesis 1 where God says, let there be light. No, and light just boomed into the darkness and God began to create all that is part of his creation. But that glory was something that his people, Israel, would experience and it would be so awesome and so uh, different for them that they almost couldn't comprehend what it was all about. And they got to Mount Sinai as Moses brought them out of Egypt. And they went to the mountain where God was going to speak to them. It says the fire and the thunder and the lightning and the smoke on the top of that mountain was the glory of God. And the people were scared to death of it. They didn't want it to get into it. They wanted Moses to handle it because it was too much for them. When they built a tabernacle in the wilderness, they would see the glory of God descend in a cloud onto the Ark of the Covenant that would be in the Holy of Holies. They would see that cloud again when Solomon built his temple, when they did get into the promised land. And that glory cloud would come down again into the Holy of Holies, into the temple. And that awesome presence of God would be displayed for them. If I could compare the understanding of glory of God with something we understand today, I, I would compare it, I guess, to the idea of the sun. You know, we are here on this earth doing well because of our relationship to the sun. We are just the right distance away from the sun to have life. You know, it, it warms us. It keeps, it keeps us from freezing to death. Uh, it comes up every day and it brings light onto the world. Things grow, plants grow, we grow because the sun uh, is available to us. We are totally dependent on the sun for life on this planet. But we also know that the sun can be dangerous. If it gets too hot, uh, then things start to burn up and that's not good. When you see all of the people that want to go out in space in their rocket ships lately, you know, they want to go to the moon, they want to go to Mars, they want to go to planets. You never see anybody wanting to go to the sun. You know, why, do, why don't they have a rocket ship that they can go to the sun? They, because you can't go to the sun. The closer you get to the sun, the more you're going to burn up, you're going to die. You, you can't get that close to the sun. It's too intense. It's too much. And that's kind of the way God's glory is righteousness is. We are completely and totally dependent on God for all of our blessings and everything that we have. And he's a good God. He supplies everything that we need. He gives us blessings that we don't deserve. And all that we have is given to us by the hand of God. He sustains us. But it's dangerous to get too close to the glory of God. They would learn that in the Old Testament says Moses saw the backside of God and his face glowed for forever. You know, he just, it was just too much. People couldn't even look at Moses. They made him put a veil on his face. 
But they had to keep people away from the total glory of God because you can't get too close without having a problem. It's dangerous. So they built barriers. When they were at Mount Sinai, they put fences around the mountain so the people wouldn't get too close. If you got too close, you could die. They would have the temple and the tabernacle arranged so the people couldn't get too close to the Holy of Holies. You had a women's court, you had a men's court. Only the priesthood, only the high priest could actually go in. All sorts of divisions because it was a dangerous thing to actually walk into the holiness and presence of God. Nothing unclean can ever touch God's righteousness. That's the message that God was trying to teach them. God's righteousness and uncleanness are not compatible. You can't put the two together. And so they had to have all these rules, all these regulations to make sure they were safe, to make sure that they didn't get too close in an unclean condition and then have to pay the penalty and have to pay the price for it. And uncleanness was something you ran into a lot. Numbers 19.22 would say it this way. Anything that an unclean person touches becomes unclean. And anyone who touches it becomes unclean till evening. It was like uncleanness was contagious. If you touched something unclean, you became unclean. And then if somebody touched you, they became unclean because you were unclean. And then the, anything they touched was unclean. If an unclean person was sitting on your couch and got up and you sat on that couch, you got unclean too because uncleanness just gets all over everything. And then you have to wash. You have to go through certain rituals to get rid of the uncleanness, to regain your place in the community. You could never bring a sacrifice. You could never come into God's presence if you hadn't gone through the ritual of the washing and the cleansing to make sure that anything unclean had been taken care of because you cannot go into God's presence with uncleanness. But when Jesus would come on the scene, as Paul recorded, he said, now you could see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this would change the whole concept of what it meant to be exposed to the glory and the righteousness of God. There's a story that illustrates it in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus encounters a leper that wants to be healed. It says, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Nothing was as unclean as a leper. Lepers had to be off away from all of society in their own little enclave. They couldn't get near anybody because not only was the disease contagious, but you, couldn't, you don't want to touch a leper, and a leper couldn't touch anybody else. It was a crime for them to touch anybody because they would give that uncleanness to anybody else. But here's this man and his uncleanness that comes to Jesus, and he needs help. And he cries out to Jesus because he can't get close to Jesus. He can't really touch Jesus. He can only cry out and hope Jesus hears and answers his plea. 
And when he cries out to Jesus for help and says, I want to be clean. I'm tired of being unclean. I want to be clean. Will you help me? Jesus says, yes, I'll help you. And then Jesus does the most amazing thing. He walks over and he touches the leper. Now, that should have made Jesus unclean. Because when you touch anything unclean, you become unclean. But Jesus didn't become unclean. In fact, just the opposite happened. Jesus made the unclean clean. They were amazed at that. Nothing Jesus touched made him unclean. In fact, the opposite happened. He would always make the unclean clean. And when the man couldn't come to Jesus, Jesus came to him. See, that's the greatness of the message that Paul is talking about. That when Jesus comes on the scene, there's a whole different way of looking at the glory and the righteousness of God. And now everybody would have to reboot. Their whole understanding of clean and unclean and God's righteousness would have to be changed. Because once Jesus declares you clean, you're clean. His righteousness is infused in you, and now nothing can make you unclean. Which meant they had to change the food laws. Because it doesn't matter what you eat now. It can't make you unclean. It doesn't matter where you've been, who you've touched. You can't become unclean once Jesus has made you clean. Jesus makes the vilest sinner clean. And when you're clean, nobody can take that away from you. He would make tax collectors clean with all the sins that they brought to the table. He even made Matthew one of his 12. He'd eat with them, have Zacchaeus come down, eat with him. And the Pharisees would stand outside knowing they can't go in there because they would be unclean. They were right on that point. Sitting down with those people would have made them unclean. But they could never understand that Jesus didn't become unclean when he sat with the tax collectors and the sinners because nothing makes Jesus unclean. He's the source of the glory of God. He makes the unclean clean. And so by the time the dinner was over, most of them probably were saved. Because you don't stay in Jesus' presence very long without deciding whether you're a sinner or not and want to change. That's the greatness of the message that Paul is talking about. That when you meet Jesus, you can be changed. Your sins can be forgiven. Doesn't matter what they are. Doesn't matter where you came from. Doesn't matter what you did. Doesn't matter how unclean you managed to make yourself. Jesus Christ forgives sin and he turns you from unclean to clean. When we get in the waters of baptism, we leave that old nature behind. We are not the same people when we come up out of that water as we were when we went in. Because he has changed us. He's rebooted us. We are now clean. We are righteous. His righteousness given to us. Not because we deserved it. Not because we've earned it. But as a free gift from God. Because he reaches out to us. When we cannot reach out to him. And even after that. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. 
so that we can be people that have a purpose, people that can be what God intended us to be in the first place and take the message of this great gospel story into the world. This is what Paul is talking about. The, the glory that's in the face of Jesus Christ is a life-changing encounter, and you are never the same again. He would go on in 2 Corinthians to explain it even more. Let's go back to that scripture and add on the next verse. He says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let, shine, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. See, the greatness of this message, this life-changing message, Paul says, has been entrusted to jars of clay. Not jars of steel. He's talking about us here. It's, it's, it's entrusted to people. We're not entrusted like steel where we've been forged in the fire and we're all shined up and glowing and nothing can crack us and nothing can you know, do anything to us. We're hard as steel. That's not how Paul describes us. He describes us as jars of clay, earthen vessels in the King James, which means as clay, we've been molded by God and we tend to crack. We're more cracked pots than we are steel encounters because we're not perfect. And herein is the problem. The message is great. The message is life-changing. But God entrusted that great, marvelous message to people like us. And so we have a responsibility. And the problem is we tend to be more crack pots than we tend to be really good jars. And so because we're imperfect and because we have not always done the right thing, the message sometimes gets a little obscured to people. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. How can we fix up our crack pots? And what is it that we need to do? As I have observed for the last year and a half and two, all the craziness that's going around us, how do we get this great message out to a world that needs to hear us when it's been entrusted to some very imperfect people? Jesus told us in the Great Commission that we were to go out into the world. We already know that. That's the end of Matthew. But he didn't just say, take the message out. He said, when you take the message out, make disciples. As I look at the whole concept of evangelism and the way people evangelize today, I really don't think we have a big problem with taking the message out. It's everywhere. Good heavens. It, it, you can get a video of it. You can watch it. You can watch Chosen on your thing. Good show, by the way. You can read about it. We've got access to all kinds of things. We've got the messages out there, and people do a good job of taking it. Some of you do an excellent job of taking the message out. We focused on that. We're very focused on that. We should be focused on that. It's a good thing to be focused on taking the message out, but that's only part of the Great Commission. The other part is 
We have to make disciples. And here, I think sometimes we're kind of missing the boat. Because as disciples, we're a lot like the 12 disciples Jesus had. And and if you ever read anything about those 12 disciples, you know, they spent most of their time being kind of clueless. They didn't know what Jesus was up to. They complained, they fussed, they argued. They were jars of clay. But the church is still the place where the message is played out. And if we're going to impact the world, if we're going to change the world, then we have to always remember our words are not nearly as effective as our actions. You know this as a parent. They watch you the way you act will make much more of an impression than all the words you say. And if your actions and your words don't match, you got a major problem. That's always a major problem. So if the church's actions don't illustrate the greatness of this message, then how is anybody going to really understand that glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus isn't here anymore in in incarnate form. They see the glory of God in our faces. So what do they see when they look at us? And I want to give you three areas today where the church needs to rise up and reclaim and reboot and do what we are called to do. The first is the message of unity. Galatians 3.26 says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If anything, I think the last couple years, two years, year and a half, since COVID hit and we also had to go through an election, that we have witnessed a great divide in our country. We are not in unity anymore. In fact, this is probably as divisive a time as I can ever remember. People are at each other's throats. Racism is a major topic uh, in the country today, uh, with each side having their ideas of what ought to be done and what the problem is. Certainly, politics has divided everybody. As you're in one camp or the other, and nobody can understand how you can be in the other camp, Uh, Because everyone should be in your camp because you're right. And we don't understand why anyone can't understand that. We don't know how to talk to each other anymore. In fact, we've become a nation that can't talk at all. Mostly when we're talking, we're just giving our point of view. And if the other person stops talking, we just are listening for them to stop talking so we can get back to telling them what we think and straighten them out. You know, nobody's actually listening. Everybody's just actually talking. And I know my point is right, so, you know, hello, how come you haven't gotten that yet? But when we're divided like that, it leads to anger, leads to resentment, leads to strife. And that's what you're seeing played out today in the anger of people and the uproar and the riots and everything else that happens 
because we've forgotten how to talk to each other and we've forgotten how to come together in unity. So the answer for all the ills of our society is the church of Jesus Christ. The answer's not in politics. The answer's not in uh, anything else out there, any idea you may have. The answer's in the church. But the church has to be an example of what unity actually looks like. Because that's the greatness of the message that Paul is talking about. That in Christ there is no division. It doesn't matter what your background is. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter if you're from a different race. It doesn't matter if you're from a different religious background. It doesn't matter what your background is. At the foot of the cross, we are all the same. And there is no division in the church of Jesus Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That should be our cry. That's the greatness of the message. But is that what people see in the church? See, here's where we need to reboot and think about it. If the problem of racism in this country is going to be solved then it first has to be solved in the church. You can't solve anything in the country until you solve it in the church. And unfortunately, the history of the church, particularly in this country, isn't really good on this point. It's a very divided church. And we have to rethink what it means to be united, what it means to be together, What does it look like? How do we play it out? How can the world see in us a unity and a bond that simply cannot be broken and it belongs to everybody who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord? means we have to learn how to talk to each other. See, it's not enough just to say, oh, well, you know, we're kind of integrated here. You know, I can look around and point out different races. I know some of you are from different religious backgrounds. I can do all that. That's not really unity. The fact that you can sit down with somebody and not, you know, refuse to speak to them. True unity lies in the fact that we can have conversations together and tell the truth. Where we're not afraid to say what needs to be said because somebody might get offended. We need to learn to listen to each other. We need to learn to understand each other's point of view. The backgrounds, the hurts, the betrayals, what has happened. And then we need to learn how to fix it. Because if we can't fix it in the church, we'll never fix it in society. We are the example of what it means to be in unity. To understand the sacrifice some families have to make when they leave their family for Christianity. To understand the hurts some people have to go through because of the ignorance of other people. These are conversations we need to have. These are conversations we should be able to have without getting defensive, without trying to talk the other person into our idea of what should be done, but actually solve a problem. Because that's what unity is all about. Not that we're all the same. We're never all going to be the same. We have different personalities. We have different backgrounds. We have different gifts and talents. But unity is where we can be together and talk about what needs to be talked about without any rancor, 
and without any upset. The world doesn't know how to do that. But the reason we can do it when the world can't is because of the greatness of the message that is built on the concept of forgiveness. See, we can never be unified without truly understanding what forgiveness is all about. And we've been kind of shallow on the whole point of forgiveness. Oh, we know what it means, you know, I'll just kind of forgive you. But I see Satan in the last little bit, this whole COVID thing, really working against the concept of forgiveness. You see it's starting to be played out in our society. People are getting canceled for the most amazing things. You know, people have lost their jobs because of something they said 15, 20 years ago. They can't be forgiven. They can't start over. They have to quit. They're being destroyed because they can't be forgiven for something that happened who knows when so long ago. I am so glad I grew up in a time period where nobody kept a record of what I said in college because I would hate for everybody to know some of the things I said. You can change your mind. God tends to work on you. You can become a different person over time. The power of forgiveness is the power to start over, to be clean, to say whatever you made a mistake of in the past, whatever you managed to get yourself into, no matter how bad you used to be, no matter how stupid you used to be, no matter what ideas you used to have that were so totally wrong, you just look at yourself now and go, I can't even believe I ever thought that. Forgiveness lets us start over and it levels the playing field so that we can be in unity. And if we can't learn to forgive each other, we'll never be there. We have to model forgiveness. And we have to model unity. Because that's what will bring the world in, in a world that's becoming so fractured and so divided that nobody seems to be able to get together. Number two, the message of morality. Galatians 5, 16, Paul said, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that, you are, so that you are not to do whatever you want. If you keep reading that in Galatians, he'll go on with his vice and virtue list. He'll tell you the sins that will keep you out of the kingdom and the virtues that we should have if we're considered Spirit-filled people. I think it goes without saying, and nobody would argue with me, that our culture today has turned away from biblical morality. We're not there. Now everybody thinks they can, you know, satisfy the lust of the flesh and do whatever they want. But the church shouldn't be like that. The church has to be the bulwark against all of that. We have to be the example of what a moral life actually looks like. But again, if that's true, then how do we explain the fact that the divorce rate in the church is the same as the world? How do we explain the fact that pornography is just as prevalent among church people as it is in non-church people? How do we explain the fact that our families can be just as dysfunctional and disorganized and problematic as the world's families? How are we going to be an example to the world when we look just like the world? We're supposed to be different 
from the world. We have to reboot our whole approach to morality. Now, the church has not been good lately on the whole concept. One of the ways they've attacked morality today, the church has decided to, to just redefine sex, redefine sin, I should say. No, that's not sin anymore. This is the 21st century. I'm still looking for that verse in the Bible where it says, in the 21st century, we will redefine all of our sins. When you find it, let me know. I can't find it. But scripture doesn't say that. Everybody's analyzing, reanalyzing scripture today for every other thing. You know, that's not not what it said. Paul didn't understand today. Paul, you know, that's, go on and on and on. Or we take a negative approach. Don't do that. That's wrong. People shouldn't act like that. You know, stay, you got to stay pure. Don't do any of that. Don't think that way. Don't, don't even go there. Or we just pretend it doesn't happen. We just overlook sin, especially if it's in our families. Eh, you know, not so bad. I'd rather have them sin in my house than outside. I have never understood that remark. Yes, pave the way to hell very comfortably. It's a good job. I want to do that. We need to look at morality more from a positive point of view. Now, it's still true that God's holiness and righteousness cannot be associated with uncleanness. All those barriers they erected in the Old Testament were to protect people. And morality still protects us today because the family unit is still God's method of blessing into the church, and into the society today. It's in the family where trust is built, where faithfulness is built, where interdependence is built, where people can be secure, where love is shown. You know, the family unit is the source since Genesis of what makes a stable society, what makes a stable church. We need to preach the positive message That this can only happen when we live according to what the Bible teaches. A moral lifestyle is the best lifestyle you can possibly have. Everyone wants to be married to people they can trust. People that are going to be there for them through the thick and thin of life. People that aren't going to run away every time something bad happens. Wouldn't it be nice to know that we never had to buy a security system for our house because nobody steals? Everybody is moral? We don't have to do half the things we do because you can trust people. When they say they're going to be there, they're going to be there. They're going to take care of you. You know why that message is great and why we can actually do it? Because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. He didn't just save us and take away our sins and then just leave us. He fills us with his spirit, our paraclete, our teacher, our guide, to show us a better way, to show us how to live, because now our bodies have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. See that great glory cloud that used to come down into the Holy of Holies? That Holy Spirit now resides in us. And because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we cannot attach them to anything unclean. We have to show the world this is a blessing. This is the way to live because we have the Holy Spirit in us. And again, you see Satan understand that better than some Christians and go after our bodies. 
He tries to destroy us on every, on every front, whether it's drugs or alcohol or sexual disease or depression, suicide. Now that whole concept, I'm in the wrong body and let's destroy the body with medicines. If he can destroy your body, he destroys the temple where God's glory resides. And when he destroys your body, he gets back at God. We have to understand the sacredness of the Holy Spirit and the sacredness of a moral lifestyle that brings the joy of the Lord to us. Not perfection. We're not going to have perfect marriages where you never have a problem. You know, get over this Hollywood idea that, you know, every day you're just going to wake up and look at each other's eyes and just be so enamored with how much in love you are and float through to the kitchen to get a cup of coffee and stare at each other before you go to work. That's not going to happen. You're going to have days when you just want to strangle them. You're going to have days when you're just not on the same page. But we still have the blessing of God and we still will work it out because that's the message. But the even greater message is that through the Holy Spirit, when your sins are forgiven, it doesn't matter how badly you messed up your family. You may have completely ruined everything God gave you. Maybe your children aren't talking to you anymore. You've been divorced two, three times. You know, you don't talk to anybody in the family. You don't have any problems. Nobody likes you. Everybody hates you. You've been a mess. The Holy Spirit restores. And in the restoration of Jesus Christ, families are put back together. He puts things back that seem impossible to do. He makes the unclean clean. And he can give us the joy of the Lord so that our families can be examples to the world of what it means to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we begin to preach it that way, we begin to show people a place where they can come and they can be changed, no matter how dysfunctional or bad they can be. We are forgiven. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And number three, is the message of service. In John 13, it records the story of Jesus at the Last Supper, washing the feet of the disciples. They had become very me-focused. It's all about me. They didn't want Jesus to do it, but Jesus was going to teach them something. He was going to say, if you want to be great in the kingdom, then you have to be learned to be servant of all. We live in a very hyper-focused society about individualism. It's all about me. It's all about what I want, where I'm going, and you have no right to tell me I can't do it. I will speak my truth, and you must accept my truth, and you can't judge me. You can't tell me what to do. And unfortunately, this has kind of crept into the church as well. We become very individualistic. You can't be in unity when everybody's an individual. What's this church doing for me? I don't like this about the church. If it doesn't change, I'm going to leave. Now, we have to get back to what it's all about in serving other people. A story from when I first started. Then I'll bring this to a close. 
You'll see in this story why I need to bring it to a close, what I got accused of. This has obviously been some time ago. Uh, I hate to think how long ago now, but it was when I was first senior pastor, which was now probably about 20 years ago. But I was first starting out, difficult time. Seems it's always a difficult time. I had a delegation come to me, a group of people, most of them elders in this church. They wanted to talk to me. So they came. They came with a list of all the things that I needed to do if the church was going to survive. And if I didn't do them, you know, obviously the church was not going to survive. They started out by saying they were there to help me because I absolutely needed some help because it was so obvious that I was unspiritual and not really called to lead this church. I was only here because my father decided to put me here. It was nepotism, but really everyone knew I was unspiritual. I, I just listen. I think that's true. I'm still not overly spiritual. But they said I needed to prove that I was spiritual if I was going to stay in the position I was in. So here's, they said, first of all, you know, I've been teaching too long, so I need to stop that and need to learn how to preach. Because you've got to preach, not teach. And I didn't preach enough. It wasn't loud enough. It wasn't emotional enough. I just, I talked too much. I need to preach. I need to shorten the sermons, which is probably when you're sitting here going, yeah, she needs to do that right now because I'm getting a little long. <laughs> short sermons. We need short sermons. You know, how short? Pretty short. Shorter than what I'm doing. I need to talk more about myself. I need to be relational. I talked way too much about the Bible. I don't talk enough about myself. Nobody knows me. You know, I have to be more relational, and, and that would help. And then don't get so deep, you know. Uh, stay light. Just talk about simple things. Don't go into all of that deep stuff about Paul and everybody, you know. And, uh, you know, and then it went on and on. I don't have time to tell you everything. It was, I was there a while. And they said, now, when they finished, can we count on you to do this? I said, well, you know, probably not. <laughs> and they said, no, you have to. They said, we're elders. You have to listen to us. I said, not for long. I didn't say that, actually. It's what I wanted to say. But I said, here's the problem. I don't answer to you. I said, yeah, you do answer to us. I said, no, actually, I don't. I answer to the Lord. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Not you, not me. And he's still the head of the church. What he was trying to show his disciples when he washed their feet was what love looks like. The greatest of these is love. And that's the message of greatness we still have to get out. Love God and love your neighbor. And we need to reboot our whole concept of love because we've let the world shape that word for us and it isn't right. Read 1 Corinthians 13 again where he talks about love, that it's patient, that it's kind, that it's slow to anger. It doesn't boast. It, it, it doesn't talk about itself. It's not self-serving. And he goes on and on and it always perseveres. And Jesus even took it one step further. He said, anybody can love a friend. Can you love your enemy? And I don't see us loving our enemies very much. 
I see us having enemies, people on the other side of the political spectrum, people of different races, people that disagree with us. But love is still the basis of the message of Jesus Christ. And we need to play out what love actually looks like. The culture says love is just a fleeting emotion. Here today and gone tomorrow. It doesn't require commitment. Doesn't require trust. Certainly doesn't persevere. But that message of love leaves people brokenhearted, betrayed, lonely, suicidal. See, we need to show what love is really like. And love solves problems. Love doesn't run away from problems. It solves them. It learns how to talk to each other in a kind and listening way. Love never leaves. Love doesn't say, if you don't do it my way, I'm out of here. Love perseveres. Love isn't about me. It's about service. What can I do for you? You know you've got a problem and need to reboot when you stop being grateful and you start to complain. We have a complaining world today. Nobody's grateful for anything. All we want to do is focus on all the evils of the past, and there are many. But that won't move us forward. And there are a lot of issues in the church. You, it doesn't take much to point out all that's wrong with the church. I could do a whole sermon on that too. It's easy to complain. It's easy to point out the problems. But love solves the problems. Love does not run. Love does not leave. Love is trustworthy. Love is in it for the long haul. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love will go the extra mile. And when the enemy becomes the people in authority, when the enemy becomes the people sitting in a pew over from you, when the enemy becomes your own family, it's time to love your enemy. It's time to pray. It's time not to let anything divide us. As the Church of Jesus Christ, we should love our enemies. We should get up every morning as grateful as we can be for the president that we have, for the governor that we have, for the mayors that we have, because everybody in authority over us has been put there by God. And when you complain about them, you're complaining about God's choice for this nation. That doesn't mean we like everything they do, but we do respect the choice. And it happens in the church too. From the pastor on down to the elders, to the teachers, to everything, God put them in authority, and you need to respect the choice. And if you can't do that, you need to reboot your definition of love, because love conquers all. This is the great message that Paul understood. Forgiveness which brings unity to the church. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which brings morality to the church. And love, which brings service to the church. And that great message has been entrusted to jars of clay.
We are not perfect. We never will be. But we have the opportunity to examine ourselves with the help of the Holy Spirit and patch up whatever crack may be coming and start over and get it right because the world is falling apart and is looking for people that can live out what they preach and can make a difference in this world. Can we stand? The great thing about altars in a church is it gives you an opportunity to come and to spend some time talking to the Lord. And if you know you just need to spend some time talking to him this morning, just come on down to the altar and talk to him. Don't be in a rush. You may have gone longer than usual, but you know, don't be in a rush. Be with the Holy Spirit. Ask him to show you where you need to do better where we need to reboot because we want to be a church that impacts our area. And when people come in, they want to see people living out the gospel message of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit unity and love. And we can do that. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word of truth. God, I pray for every single one of us that need to take a very serious and genuine look at what we have heard this morning. God, if we need to lay something down, start fresh, seek you, seek forgiveness, seek unity, to be listeners and not talkers, to hear others and be receptive. God, whatever it is, to love more. See it as a solution. God, remind us we are imperfect. We are a jar of clay, but your Holy Spirit chose to reside in us. This temple, this earthen temple, as imperfect as it is, your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the living God, has chosen to be in us. Thank you for that, God. May we be people who show forth the praises of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You said, let there be light. May we be people who show forth your glory, the glory of the risen Jesus Christ. Help us to take the message and make disciples by our actions that people are watching and our words. Thank you, God. Bless every single one here. Those who've come to kneel at these altars, Lord, as they're speaking to you, meet them, hear them, help them with whatever it is that they're putting down, whatever they're laying down before you, God. And they're asking for your grace and your forgiveness and your guidance and your direction to walk out of here fresh, fresh on a clean slate. God, grant them that. Grant them that. Grant it all to us, Lord. And we thank you. We praise you. You are truly an awesome God. And we receive it, that, that healing from you. In Jesus, holy in his precious name, amen and amen.